DJ Thomas, and you're listening to Frequency Interrupted. Mr. John Sutherland, how are you, sir? Good, sir. Good, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. So uh, I actually met you a few weeks back. We put on the Cajun Cannabis Conference in North Louisiana over here. And um, you just happen to be an interesting fella, man. You're, you're a man of many talents. And I just want to talk about it. So you're the Chief Innovation and Research Officer at ULM. Right. Um, and then you're a Professor of Political political science and public administration. And uh, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but uh, that being said, man, so what do you, what do you, what do you actually specialize in? You know, probably specialize in boring undergrads with uh, countless stories about my life or, you know, it's, it's funny. It is a mouthful to say all of that. And that's why I just shorten it to, you know, instead of all the whole thing, just Dr. John innovation, political science, and that gets you there. But, I guess my area of um, specialization or interest uh, has been for many decades now, environmental issues, sustainable issues, issues of alternative energy, um, anything related to a green economy. And to be quite fair, that's that's really how I got interested in the whole cannabis sector. Yeah. Because there's so much, you know, if you went back 300 years ago, it was not uncommon for most farmers, particularly uh, in the Northeast and some across the Midwest, uh, increasingly uh, to grow uh, hemp for various industrial processes. And it, it, there's a, a regulatory piece of this. There is a, a farming piece of it. And so my attraction to it was to better understand, you know, the potential medical benefits um, and, and the regulatory process but also with an eye on looking at every industry has environmental consequences. No matter how green they pretend to be, everyone, even a recycling center or a composting center, has environmental issues. It's when you, you know, it's a matter of, you know, physics. I mean, if you yeah. rub around stuff, you're going to create residuals that are unwanted by the economic system. It's either waste or it could be raw materials for something else. One of the things that I think, DJ, that I found uh, attractive about sort of the hemp cannabis sector is pretty much all parts of the plant have a usage. So the leaves have a certain medicinal or health benefit. The stalks, because of the fiber, yeah. have various benefits across a range of products, whether we're talking about, you know, fiber for paper or raw material for building uh, products. Um, and, and even looking at some of the uses of the root system, you know, for bedding or for insulation. So the, the plant itself doesn't seem to create the residual, but the processing of it is one that you always have to monitor. And so I guess in many ways, that was what fascinated me about it. And the more I've looked at it, you know, again, the more fascinating this entire sector is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely advanced and broad at the same time. <clears throat> I didn't know what I was getting into. All I knew was just weed smoking. You know what I mean? If I'm just being honest enough, when I started diving into this industry, I'm like, it's a, it's, a, it's such a broad industry and it's really efficient. And it's something that I'm excited that it's, you know, coming around finally, you know, back around to where it can be taxed. They can figure out how to do, you know, whatever they need to do to get it in production. And we actually start using this as a sustainable research uh, resource, you know. Well, and, and, you know, that's that's a, a really an, a, an interesting piece of this because, you know, there are certainly aspects of it that represent a new and exciting and expanding economic. And clearly, the motivation for many states that are not necessarily interested in promoting either, and, and we have to separate this out, industrial hemp, you know, there really, as far as I can see, very few controversies associated with that. When you started getting into medical marijuana or the use of cannabis-derived products, then you start getting into a little bit of a division. And then on the on the very end of this is that recreational piece of marijuana. And so there's a, sort of a, hey, this is a great way to tax and make money for the government. There's also a way to create uh, development research funds to help those, for example, disproportionately uh, blacks, Hispanics have been those that have been uh, incarcerated at a higher rate than, say, whites 
Uh, it's some places four, some places as high as 20 to one difference uh, in the incarceration rate. So, you know, as the industry matures and legislation, you know, often drags behind it, what will be the the reaction on a legal basis to improving the lives or the communities that were often targeted by the war on drugs? Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're a, if you're a young black man looking to enter into this sector for whatever reason, it's exciting, it's great, whatever, there are opportunities, you know, if you have a, a possession charge, mm-hmm. you know, are you going to be eligible for certain insurance or banking privileges? Are you going to be able to, to even get a state certification? I mean, something as simple as that, because, you know, this is this is when you start digging into the details of this. OK, it's now open, free and wonderful and great. However, if it still excludes the people that have suffered from all these years, de- decades of prosecution, is it really is it really improving people's lives on that social economic front? Yeah, no, that is a good point. That's uh, that's something I haven't thought about. But that's, that's something that is going to be a big issue <laughs> that is going to have to be sorted out for sure. But, um, you know, I know that, you know, at this point, you know, it's still federally illegal. So it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know what the processes of all that. And, you know, I, I feel like eventually it's going to happen. Um, whereas, you know, each state is kind of making their own kind of jump at it and doing what they want to do. But the, it's funny how the, it comes under that umbrella with the hemp and the medicinal and the moving, you know, all that together, basically, it's like they don't know what to do with it. They, don't, they can't figure out how to, you know, regulate this stuff and get it, get it into the economy and actually start making money, um, especially in our state, you know. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's a very good point because if you look at, if you look at really the history of, and let's just use the broad term cannabis mm-hmm. to include hemp and marijuana, okay, the vast majority of the time in which hemp cannabis was legal, uh, it was primarily used uh, to make rope, to make paper. Uh, and then you started to see uh, first in Scotland and in England, some, some, some Western Euro- Europeans studying the potential medicinal benefits. And then in the U.S., you start finding some people around the Civil War, then after the Civil War, looking at medicinal benefits. And some of the, what's interesting is how full circle we've come. I mean, back in the 1890s, we're talking about the use of, of medical, basically medical marijuana in, mm-hmm. in either a smokable or some kind of uh, distilled format, uh, sometimes almost like an elixir, like a tea, if you would. So they're talking about uh, pain relief, anti-anxiety, helping with nausea. I mean, it's literally taken us almost 100 years to recognize what they were studying and understanding. The problem is, though, once marijuana specifically, and that included everything, now all of a sudden, hemp, everything is now marijuana. When you look at the process of how that went from a useful, wonderful plant to, you know, the demon loco weed that you see portrayed you know, in, in popular films like Reefer Madness and some of that craziness, what you find is, is the medical research stopped. The taxation stopped. It, it, marijuana at one time was regulated under the Treasury Department. Okay. Because it was a way to get revenue. Right. Then it was gradually moved to the Food and Drug Administration and then finally to the Drug Enforcement Agency and under Department of Justice. Well, there's a very big, you know, focus. It's a different focus if you're looking to raise revenue versus incarcerate people. Right. And so the the problem for it, once once marijuana got on that list of Schedule 1 under the Controlled Substance Act, you know, it was putting classifications with heroin. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, I, I've had conversations with people who are, are pro-marijuana uh, in various capacities who are simply coming at it from a position of equity, not necessarily because they themselves are smokers, but that it it is a matter of equity and and just bad judgment. And what's interesting too, though, DJ, is that every time there was an official government study related to recreational marijuana, so not even the medicinal, never, not even one time did the official government study, we look at like the LaGuardia report, the Schaefer report, None of those ever said marijuana was the, you know, the devil weed 
mm-hmm. like the politicians did. So the politicians manipulated this for the purposes of staying in power, staying in office. And, and we often look at, say, that presidency of Richard Nixon being the, the turning point of this. You have the, the DEA, the Controlled Substance Act, putting it as a Schedule One with heroin. I mean, you think about that, you know, logically, you know, again, whether you're pro-recreational right. or not is really, it, it's irrelevant. Is that, is marijuana really as bad as heroin? Right. Well, it will take, DJ, many years before it finally comes out that Nixon had a had a plan. And what his plan was when he was going into uh, running for his second term, he believed that his biggest opposition was, as he put it, heroin using Negroes or those hippie anti-war whites. Right. And so he linked heroin to the African-American community. He linked the marijuana to the, the hippie whites and basically used that as a tool to bust up their meetings, to, to counter any opposition because of his own politics. Now, again, politics is important. And if you don't pay attention to it, you lose out. But what is remarkable to me is the fact that no science, no pharmacy, no medical, even government reports um, did not support him. And he basically said, you know, marijuana is the killer weed and I'm going to eradicate it and I'm going to stamp out these people, typically blacks, Hispanics and poor whites uh, that were in opposition primarily to the war in Vietnam. But I'm going to use this as a tool to really hammer those communities. And unfortunately, you know, once things kind of stick, inside of uh, our politics, it takes a long time to erode that. And so from Nixon to the present, you've got a range of Democrats and Republicans who've either towed the line, pushed it a little, but for the most part, it's really taken efforts at the state level to really push and, and in many ways sort of undo and unravel this federal regime that exists. Yeah, we've seen that. Um, and it's a, it's a very good point you bring up, too, because, you know, something that it was really it was, it was hit hard in the 60s and the 70s. And that's kind of bled into, you know, the decades following that until now where we're starting to see it, you know, come back to life and being used for, old, you know, and, and being more acceptable. Whereas if you looked at it 20 years ago, oh, no, they're smoking dope somewhere. You know, we're going to talk about that. We, we That's completely wrong. We don't want to you know get into it. But it it's interesting you brought that up because. Looking at that, you know, we were talking about federal to state. We we as an economy or as, you know, basically it's just regular consumers have seen the power of that throughout this COVID epidemic. You know, right. We've seen where, OK, a state can make its own decisions where we've never really seen that broadcasted at a mass showing at one time. So now we kind of now you can see you can relate that a little bit to the state's power to kind of regulate this thing aside from the fe- the federal regulation. Yeah, and you know, I mean, not to uh, not to sort of belabor the point, but it is an interesting to me as a political scientist. It's interesting, sort of the constitutional issues here. Mm-hmm. You know, at one time it was it was federally illegal, and ultimately there was a court case on this, uh, the Connick case, that looked at whether or not a doctor could quote recommend medical marijuana to his or her patients. Now you think about that the sort of sanctity that exists between a doctor and, and, and his or her patient. The fact that the federal government would say, whoa, you can't even discuss this because if you do, we'll take away your license. Well, if Or if we don't take away your license, we will restrict your ability to write prescriptions. Yeah. Well, a doctor that doesn't write prescriptions, I mean, I'm not oh. even sure what that means. Um, <laughs> you know, what, the, what the heck is a doctor that doesn't write prescriptions? So, you know, just a guy in a weird white coat? I don't know. Um, but... Uh, Ultimately, it became a matter of free speech. However, the result of it has been this. When you look at various state laws around the country, one of the early bills that will be out there concerning uh, a doctor and, again, his or her patient on the issue of medical marijuana would be that they don't prescribe it, they recommend it. Gotcha. And And that slight wording, it seems odd to a layman, but there's a constitutional legal reason for it. What we what we have seen over the last few years, though, is this attempt to unravel the process, decriminalize it, and various attorney generals, uh, Ogden first and Cole, and then Sessions kind of rolled it back 
But the idea was this, and this this was really towards uh, the middle of of President Obama uh, that did this, is that there were there's a lot of other federal issues that are more important. Yeah. We're not going to waste federal resources on someone who has a couple of joints in their pocket. Yeah, I mean that's a waste of federal resources, particularly if somebody is like at their house minding their own business. You know, I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen if somebody smokes too much? I mean, they order Papa John's at three in the morning. <laughs> it, 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 it strains credulity to to accept the premise. And, and, and DJ, this is sort of part of that process here. Early on in the discussion of of marijuana, several things were linked to it. One was the so-called criminality theory. That everybody that smokes dope commits crimes. Yeah. The other thing that was part of it was that everybody that smokes dope ultimately becomes a potential heroin user. Okay. And then you link it to the racial component that this is a way to degenerate whites by associating with Hispanics or blacks. And there was so much this sort of undercurrent of racism, xenophobia mixed in this. And what's interesting is that. As we've kind of come full circle, it's like, you know, all of the premises that we based decades of policy on were totally false. Yeah. You know, people that smoke dope are no no more likely to commit a crime than anyone else. People that smoke dope, marijuana, are no more likely to try anything else stronger than that than anybody else, you know. And it, it, when you start comparing like the addictive rates, the addictive rates of marijuana are substantially less than alcohol, yeah, less yeah, than yeah. tobacco. And, you know, at a time when they were demonizing, you know, marijuana, the country was in a cultural social revolution, you know, really encouraging people to smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. and to consume more alcohol. I mean, you look at some of the, Propaganda is the best way of putting it. Propaganda against marijuana in the 40s and 50s compared to the way in which advertising was able to have a free reign with cigarettes and alcohol. And then you compare the fatalities, you know, all of the other negative consequences. You know, marijuana was really should have been thought of as "Hmm, this is probably pretty far down the list compared to people drinking, driving and smoking a couple of packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah, it's very evident when you look back now, seeing like, especially you brought that point up is, is how it was used in politics to, you know, be moved around and, and, you know, regulate things how they wanted to at the time. And it's something that's, you know, unfortunately, we're past that now. We just got to move forward. But it's something that's just heartbreaking for, you know, especially when you get into the, the racism part of it and how many people have been incarcerated. And you look at like the Innocence Project and all these other people who are, you know, wrongfully convicted for stuff. They're, they're trying to get out now. And the, all these people who their entire lives have been, you know, thrown into shambles because they've spent time behind bars for something so minimal at this, you know, they could never, should have never even been illegal, you know, but it's just one of those things we're, we're dealing with now. Well, and you make a good point here. And, you know, to be fair, we have a lot of responsibility in this state because it was our own, um, Congressman Hale Boggs that introduced what is known as the Boggs Amendments in the uh, in the early fifties that had these very punitive uh, sentencing requirements, mm-hmm. and so you know up until the fifties it would be a fine you know thirty sixty ninety days in jail, but after Boggs and what we call the Little Boggs Amendments that were passed all over the country, you had states going to mandatory sentencing of five to ninety nine years for possession with intent to distribute. And intent to distribute was was so low that if you had two or three joints in your pocket, you could be considered as a potential drug dealer when that probably was not the case. Right. Probably that was your own consumption. And what's interesting about this, I mean, this tells you how political and, and sort of the, the, the shallowness of the politics are. Up until, so that passes in uh, 51. So in the early 70s, two famous people get arrested for smoking dope. One of them was Robert Kennedy Jr. The other was Sergeant Shriver. Well, now it was all of a sudden, wait, it's not those crazy hippies out at Woodstock smoking dope and bathing in the sunshine or whatever they do, listening to rock and roll. Wait, these were like, 
the son of a former presidential candidate, the son of the, I think, Shriver's dad at the time was ambassador to France. And from that moment forward, states began decriminalizing the mandatory sentencing piece of it. Now, you still would go to jail. Right. But it wasn't as virulent as it had been. And then what does Nixon do? Sort of double down on this within a couple of years, again, against the Schaefer report, against all of his advisors and said, you know, public enemy number one is marijuana. Okay, And again, it's taken us a long time to get to where we are now. And and this is what I try to tell people about this. No doubt there are reasons to be excited and encouraged. However, remember, we didn't get to this point in a few years. We got to this point over about an 80-year window, and there are people you can talk to, semi to very educated people walking around looking like regular folks, and you ask them, what do you think about marijuana? And they'll be like, that's the killer weed, or that's what, you know, this, and they don't understand all of it. And when you discuss the medical benefits of marijuana or uh, CBD or various CBD derived products, you'll find them. Oh, wait, that's just, you know, that's just dope under a different name. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a prejudice. That prejudice comes from, you know, a long line of this criminality gateway theory, but also too, there is still an element of racism and ethnicity oh, yes. towards blacks, Hispanics. And remember, California was the first state to pass any kind of anti- uh, marijuana laws, and it was primarily because they were concerned about Chinese and Indian, as they referred to those Hindu laborers. So they were concerned about those people who were not using it for recreational. It was part of religious or medicinal mm-hmm. reasons. Texas was hot on their heels. They passed it in El Paso because they were they were so fearful that Mexicans were coming across the border and just slaughtering people. And so we've got to put a tourniquet on this. And again, unraveling the the information about marijuana, that's a piece of it. But unraveling what people emotionally feel, that is a very, very hard proposition. Yeah, and it's going to take some time. It is interesting, too, because I was never one of those users, um, you know, growing up. But in my side of the world, especially in the fitness and all that industry, CBD was introduced a few years ago. And it, and I think CBD has done a has been a pioneer for getting this back into you know movement and actually moving around to where people accept it because it's been something that's been I mean amazing for anti-inflammatory stuff. I got to where I started using it, and you know it, the products are just what it's working is you're using something natural, not something that's you know built in a lab and put together. And um, it's just been exciting to see that movement, and then as it transitions into the medical part. And then it's especially the the other hemp side that I really wasn't that educated on until here recently. I've been, you know, looking into that. And there's a lot to that that, you know, is exciting, too. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, people that are, uh, you know, people like you and I that work out every day. um, Yeah, right. Yeah. Listen, you know, I drive by my gym and I start sweating. Okay, (laughs) uh, But yeah, but people who. There are some people, myself included, that I do not want to take a bunch of medicine yeah. for pain or inflammation. I'm fortunate I don't I don't suffer with a lot of pain or inflammation, but I do a lot of homeopathic things. And if there is a more natural way of doing something that works better than say an opioid based, yeah. and you know, again, going back hundred years ago. Uh, One of the things that uh, doctors and and pharmacists found is that marijuana helped people get off of opioid, cocaine, heroin, all of those things. And so we I mean, you can't hardly bring up opioids without saying opioid addiction, opioid crisis. If we have something natural that's non-addictive, that has other health properties, maybe with anxiety, depression anti-inflammatory, anti-pain, can get people off of that, it would be worth pursuing. What what I find very strange about discussions of cannabis in particular is that if we had just found out about cannabis, say, in the last week, 
and all the things people would be talking about it as if it was the new wonder drug. Yeah. You know, but because it has all this political, social, cultural, economic baggage that it's carrying along decades of misinformation, prejudice, in many ways, ignorance. And I, and I put myself in that category. You know, when I talk to uh, pharmacists or doctors and they say, um, here are some potential benefits. And I say, where did you find this? And they say, well, because of so many restrictions for years, a lot of research on this hasn't taken place in the United States. A lot of this research has been in Sweden, Canada, Israel. Mm-hmm. And so you go to journals there and you're like, wow, there's a whole lot of information And in this country, we've got to get caught up to speed because, look, in the absence of information, ignorance will find a way to go in there and fill it. And I have found there's just as many false claims about CBD, cannabis, medical marijuana. I mean, look, at the end of the day, there is no miracle drug or anything. Some things have positive and negative benefits. Okay, and you look at that and you weigh the, you know, there was a report just a week or so ago. Reevaluating the use of low-grade aspirin for people sixty and over. Yeah, I've wow. seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. Well, DJ, I mean, you saw it. Our entire lives, we've been told what, man? When you get to, you know, you need to start getting that little old baby aspirin in your system. Well, yep. now it's like, mm, wait a minute. So we live, we learn, we grow, we adapt, but you have to be willing to learn yeah you can't just accept everything i mean i got something this is no joke sent to me in the mail and it was something to the effect of that cbd was going to make my skin prettier which is damn near impossible Uh, (laughs) i mean a skin it was so many claims and i was like wait a minute i'm gonna be like six four you know 180 white teeth fresh breath beautiful skin well where do i sign up but the problem was you need that third party. You need the yeah. independent analysis because you think about yourself, people who are, you know, younger people, athletes, people who work out, people who are engaged. You know, uh, my wife does boxing. I mean, you don't have any idea how dangerous it is around my house. And people that box often have lots of physical problems that they oh, have yeah. to overcome, have to manage pain. Yeah. Um, if there's a way for them to have a better results from a cannabis-based product than taking something that's akin to an opioid, why would you not consider that? Exactly. No, exactly. And it's it's slowly rolling out. You've seen it. Uh, it's rolling out in um, combat sports, I think, initially, um, where um, like most um, mixed martial artists are kind of not being as subjugated to that as much but it's it, it'll i think it'll slowly trickle in as it is in society and, and i'm excited about it for the next 10 years i feel like anyone that's involved in this industry you and i had this conversation already at the at the actual conference but anyone that's involved in this industry right now is going to be part of the pioneership laying the foundation for this you know as it's all you know coming to fruition basically well and, and you're right and dj and and this is again the importance of getting it right because so, we are we are building the foundation, mm-hmm. and the way the house crumbles is when the foundation goes straight to hell. Yeah, and the foundation we're laying needs to be one based upon certainly more inclusive ability for more and diverse people to participate. Uh, it needs to be something that's fair, okay, uh, so that everybody who is wanting to get into this economic space can do so legally and have access to banking services. I mean, it's it's something as simple as taking your cash from your legitimate business down to the bank, making the deposit or getting change is considered a banking service. Yeah. And, And those are the kinds of things that you have to do. Because let me tell you, if you don't do that, what you're going to do is encourage an illegal market to take place. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. That's a very good point. You know, and, and, and the, and the, and the, on the flip side to it, if you don't do something about it, when it does finally get to the point where we have a unified federal system, you know, and states are in line federally, uh, you don't want a large player to come in and basically take over it so that those people who have been sort of on the front lines of this 
can't economically benefit. Yeah. And it's not to pick on a company, but at the end of the day, when Walmart steps into this space, where does the mom and pop retailer yeah. or grower or developer, where where do they fit in? And I would say that they probably don't have much space. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be, that's going to be, a, that's something I never even thought of, but the, you know, the, the, the black market part of it, I, you know, I have, because I mean, at this point, banks can't even, you can't even transact through a bank to sell, you know, these products. It's just a whole ordeal. Um, and I'm so excited about it because it's, it's, like I said, we're at the beginning of this, you know, taking shape and it's, it's nice that you have so much knowledge on stuff like this, but I love cannabis. I love talking about it, but I want to shift gears real quick. Sure. I want to know more about you and how you got into what you do, because you're, you're a man of very many talents and very many words. And how did you, so where'd you come from and how did you get into all this? Sure. I, uh, I grew up in a very, very small, uh, it's not even a town. I grew up in a water district. <laughs> water district. There was, yeah. There were six families and we had a water tower and that was our unifying political entity. But I lived outside of a small town in South Arkansas. Uh, that's where I grew up. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in a farm. I always tell people was six miles out of town, half a mile up a gravel road, 200 feet down a dirt road. And there we were. <laughs> so you were either coming to see us or you were up to no good. Uh, cause we were in the sticks and we, we got, we got sunlight on Thursdays. We could get AM radio occasionally. Um, but you know, you don't know when you're a little kid, how poor and broke you are yeah. until hindsight. But I didn't feel that way. I mean, we had horses, cows, chickens, goats. I mean, you know, I told someone the other day, I never actually ordered a uh, pizza delivered until I was in college. <laughs> uh, I mean, if we got hungry, literally, I can remember many a time, my, uh, you know, going to the house, my mom hungry, getting a sandwich. She's like, we've got two ponds full of fish. We got a forest full there of fish. There you go. There you go. I'm busy doing something. <laughs> go get it. And and you you grow up with a weird sense of self-reliance. Yeah. You know, the way that I grew up, and even to this day, I, my default setting isn't to ask for help. My default setting is to kind of just do it. Yeah. And um, I think there is something to be said for, you know, growing up. Um, I remember when I started dating my wife, um, she went with me back to Arkansas to meet my parents. Both of my parents were Holy Ghost preachers. And uh, so meeting them. And so my dad wakes me up in a separate bedroom, by the way, uh, <laughs> of wakes me up and says, hey, there's some deer down here. Do you want to shoot one and take one back to New Orleans? I was living in New Orleans um, in graduate school at the time. So I said, yeah, I said, let me let me wake up Chris. And um, so I woke her up and said, hey, we're fixing to go kill a deer. She says, you know how to kill a deer? And I said, <laughs> Yeah, I might I might have killed a deer once or twice in my life. But she goes, really? And she goes, let me watch this. So I shot it. My dad went in there, gutted it, and we started cleaning it. I mean, we clean. I mean, you gotta understand. Since about the time I was four, yeah. I'd been cleaning and skinning deer and other stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I never forget we're 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 cleaning this deer, and I kind of gave my dad a little high sign, and he he. So anyway, I, I reached in there, I cut the heart out, and I said, "Look, babe," I said. Since this is your first deer you've been part of, you got to feel the, what I forget, like the energy of the stag, yeah. you know, some crap. So I just took a big bite out of it, this little part, you know, blood going down, pass it over my dad. He takes a bite. And we're not biting it. I mean, we're just yeah. making it look like Right, that. right. So she looks at me, her eyes are big. She goes, you're some kind of barbarian. <laughs> I knew you were a redneck, but I didn't think you were a barbarian like this. And so I laughed. Oh, till hell wouldn't have it. So later on, I asked her, I said, well, baby, you knew where I grew up. She goes, I know, but when I met you in New Orleans, you know, you were in your urban environment where, yeah. <laughs> you know, you went to the opera and you like scented candles and bath beads. And I was like, well, hell, what kind of a, what kind of a man did you think you were going to marry? You know, I mean, here I am, you know, uh, reformed redneck. But anyway, I went, I, I left uh, South Arkansas and, Moved to Louisiana, uh, got my undergrad at Louisiana Tech, had a lot of fun there, was able, probably my best experience at Tech was that I managed our college radio station. Okay. And I got turned on to what then was considered alternative or college music. And then over the years, 
you know, once you sort of get into that interest, you know, you stay interested in it throughout your life. And so I still gravitate, you know, I'm not really into whatever's like top 40, you know, that kind of yeah, thing, right. the most popular, but I, I've gravitated to, to things. And, and so over the years, what's interesting is when my um, kids were born and they came to a certain age, I never forget my oldest came to me and, and Alex and, and asked me, dad, have you ever heard of this band called the Smiths? And I said, yeah, you know, I may have heard about them around the pool hall once or twice. So what do you know about them? And then asked me about Oasis yeah. and Blur and yeah. Beck. And I'm like, no, that's when you know you've done a good parenting job. <laughs> kids are, you know, driving around, you know, listening to, you know, Death Grip. Yeah. And, not, uh, and not necessarily, uh, you know, whatever else is on. But uh, I, I got my PhD in New Orleans and taught for many years at Tulane and did a lot of research and then just started doing consulting. I mean, it's like being a real estate agent. You just wake up one day and start selling houses. And yeah. I just started a company and started consulting. And next thing you know, I was working in Ecuador and then in Slovenia and then throughout Poland and Eastern Europe and uh, then in the Middle East. And over the years, I, I tell people I'm very, very fortunate. I get to do exactly what I want to do mm -hmm. all day long. I don't set an alarm clock. When I wake up, I'm happy to get up and get on it. Um, I've been very fortunate in the years of having some wonderful students at Tulane and at the University of Louisiana Monroe. Um, your best students are your best students regardless. You know, yeah. regardless of where they are, they're the same type of people. Um, and I've been very fortunate, uh, patented a couple of inventions, uh, produced and directed 28 films for PBS, um, recently wrote my eighth book, and this book is part of a trilogy. Um, uh, I'm calling it my environmental trilogy of yeah. things that I observed firsthand throughout my life that I played in the first book, a tiny, tiny role. I'm already into my second of the trilogy writing it played a much bigger role. And then the third one, uh, my publisher doesn't know it yet, but I have no idea what I'm going to write about, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think I th I've got a couple of clues, but, uh, you know, so, but anyway, it, it's, it's, look, I get calls from people all the time that have an environmental situation and it could be anything. And I mean, anything could be a government, could be a corporation, could be. Well, to put that into the context for people yeah. who may be listening or watching, what would that, what be, would be a good, let's say a good broad example of that. Okay. Environmental this, situation. Is, this is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, a, a few years ago, I was asked to go to Dubai. Mm -hmm. because um, there was a lake in the middle of Dubai that was totally polluted and they couldn't figure out how to clean it. Okay. And they had called in experts for almost five years and it was so bad and smelly and polluted that it was hard to recreate in that park. There was a restaurant that had to close down that was right on the park. Beautiful. So I put together a team of people. We went to uh, Dubai and probably within about five days, I knew exactly what the issue was. Okay. And uh, once you've seen a whole bunch of stuff, it's not, you know, the next, the hundredth example is not all that big. Right. So I went there, put together a team. And over the next couple of weeks, we literally got the, got the lake clear. And I mean, crystal clear. So one of the administrators for the city of Dubai came out and I never, he like grabs my shirt like this and he goes, I have not seen this lake like this since I was a boy. Mm -hmm. And I said, let me show you something. I flipped a coin into it. I said, is it heads or tails? And he looked, he goes, my God, he goes, I can see the coin in the bottom of that. I mean, it was crystal clear. Um, and there was a couple of problems that we had to solve there to fix it. But there's a lot of, I mean, now you've got, uh, instead of this, disaster in the middle of a very nice, you know, park in the nice, in a very expensive town, you now have something that's a resource. Mm -hmm. um, but I've gotten called, I've gotten called in before for like polluted properties that they okay. want to clean up. So anything, you know, I've done a lot of uh, garbage or landfill projects. Those are always fun. Um, I've evaluated lots of technologies. I've seen some that are just total scams 
Uh, and those are they just shake your head and you're like well, and you got you got investors too. Yeah, that's that's a fun thing. That's a fun thing about being in a profession, uh you know, professional at your craft is you can smell bullshit from a oh. mile away. And like so the marketing world, I see it all the time, man. So I can relate. I'm like Someone I asked my advice, I'm like, you're about to waste a shitload of money on something that's not going to work. Like, get away right now. You know what I mean? I had someone, this is about two years ago, okay, contact me about a uh, a type of disinfectant. This is so COVID is just going to start uh, breaking uh, in the okay. U.S. So you had all these disinfectant entrepreneurs, you know, disease entrepreneurs. Yeah. So. This guy contacts me and he's explaining. I said, look, will you send me your, your specification, your data sheet on this? Let me just look at this. It was complete rubbish. And I looked at it and I, and I called him. I said, and he was in um, uh, Kuwait. And I said, is there anything missing here? He goes, no. I said, this won't work. <laughs> I said, this is crap. I said, he goes, no. He goes, I I, along with like 10 of his friends had invested a hundred grand a piece and they had brought in some outside. And I said, man, I said, this is, this is not even, this is not even junk. This is like dangerous junk. Mm. And, and, and the whole thing. And I, and I'm like, and I said, look, if you had explained this to me in 30 seconds, what would it be? And so he got through, he goes, what do you think? And I said, it's crap. It's garbage. This is dangerous because what you'll do is you'll uh, lure people into a false sense of security. And next thing you know, you're going to compromise somebody's health because this yeah. doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, it was crazy. And I've seen a lot of environmental crazy stuff over the years. I mean, I saw, I saw a guy one time, he wanted, he wanted to take uh, regular uh, garbage, like at a landfill. This is no joke. Send it through this device that would cryogenically freeze garbage. And then he had this big like hammer and it would come down and, and macerate, just crush this stuff up to bits and pieces. And, and I said, okay, so now you got, instead of like big waste, you got frozen little waste, but yeah. the volume is still the same. Yeah. He says, <laughs> yeah, he goes, yeah, leave it to some uh, idiot professor to be all negative about it. I said, well, what do you do with the little waste? He said, ah, he said, we're going to burn that. And I said, burn it. And I said, now it's frozen cold has condensate. Whatever BTU value it may or may not have had is gone. And I said, where are you looking to build one of these things? And he goes, well, I heard North Korea needs this. And I said, oh, for God's sakes, man. I said, you know what? I was just like, why did you waste my time with this? Mm. Needless to say, it never went anywhere. Um, and I see this. I, I can't even begin to tell you the tons and tons of craziness that you see out there. Climate change has has brought out a whole new realm of crazy technologies. Yeah. That, yeah. that are more than just locally dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be globally dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's something. It's really something. Yeah. The, the, <clears throat> the way that people are trying to, you know, get rid of waste in these not efficient ways is extremely dangerous. <laughs> extremely dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell me about your book. Well, starting about, I was a lowly little graduate student taking a, I was a political science uh, graduate student, but I decided that I wanted to kind of beef up my bona fides in terms of um, uh, technical knowledge. So I decided to take a graduate class in environmental engineering. Okay. Um. Needless to say, a huge mistake. Um, <laughs> so graduate class in environmental engineering. And I never forget the first night, the professor's like going down the roll and like he looks up at me and he's like, boy, you're in the wrong class. But you know, typically when someone starts a sentence with boy, it, it's not going to get better. It's just gonna, And I said, well, why don't you worry about teaching the class and let me worry about learning it and don't do me any favors. And literally, like, all the engineering students were on one side of the room, and I was alone like a stone over here until I set the the midterm curve. (laughs) And I had all these new engineering friends. I didn't even know they were quietly supporting me. And But one of our projects was to go to the world's largest hazardous waste incinerator, which was in South Louisiana. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and it was the world's largest. And I went there. 
And you ever get this thing when you're talking with someone and they seem to be just trying to, it's like they're trying to impress or yeah. convince you. And I was thinking, I'm just some goofball graduate student. I'm nobody. Why are you pressing this? And it clicked in my head. Something was wrong. Mm-hmm. So I followed the case throughout the years. Well, long story short, this thing ended up in court. There was a local women's group that uh, raised living hell about this, as they should have. Uh, Centers for Disease Control came in and did some uh, testing for cancer, neuroblastoma in children. Uh, there was allegations of bribery. It took about 15 years to close it down and clean up the site. But at one point, they were they were importing hazardous waste from 48 states, most of the Fortune 500 companies, dozens and dozens of large uh, cities that uh, produced hazardous waste, and burning it down in South Louisiana. When, when what years was this going on? Primarily when it, when it, uh, late late eighties, early nineties. Did Aaron Brockovich show up? Ah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody asked me one time about that, and I said, "Well, I said, you know." I often do get confused for Aaron Brockovich, particularly <laughs> Julia Roberts, um, you know, because we look so much alike. Um, but uh, it was one of these where some uh, women, and I, I hate to use the phrase ordinary because there's nothing ordinary about them, lots of courage, but they got themselves armed with science. Okay. And the moment they combined emotion and dedication with science, the, 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 the days were were numbered for this company. Um, the politics of it, though, eventually, uh, Governor Romer's opposition to this company probably cost him his second term in office. The owner of the company, I mean, th- there's so many wonderful stories in this book. The owner of the company was a guy named Jack Kent who sailed out into the Gulf of Mexico to avoid state prosecution. So he was out there in federal waters and then when the election came up, he sailed into New Orleans, spread about a half a million dollars in cash around, and destroyed Buddy Romer. And that's how we ended up with the David Duke Edwin Edwards, the race from hell, as it's called. Okay. Where you have a crook or a racist, you know. And I think Louisiana rightfully picked the crook over the racist. Uh, the long term repercussions of having David Duke as governor would have been just a disaster, but it certainly cost Romer. And, you know, his commitment to doing what was right. I mean, Romer had pros and cons like anyone in office, but his commitment to doing what was right, enforcing the laws, he was not going to do a wink and a nudge and let things go. Uh, there were crazy, crazy stories we, we document in this. And uh, the book just come out recently. It's been one of the top sellers on Amazon since April. Uh, and that's a place to go. And then, you know, shameless plug here. Do it. Play, Play it with, with fire. fire. Playing with Fire, and you can just go to Amazon, type in Playing with Fire. My name John W. Sutherland. It'll come up. You can do it Kindle or uh, hard book. I'm not fully, uh, I'm not fully hip to the ship on Kindle. Uh, I, I'm still old, where I have to hold is, stuff. Is there a, um, is there an audible version yet? I have been asked a couple of times to do that. You should do it, and you should read it. I I, uh, I thought I was going to get my twin brother um, John Goodman to do it. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> but my publisher said that would increase costs. But uh, yeah, I have thought about it. The, the sure. problem that I've got is that I'm I'm up to my eyeballs now in the second yeah. book, trying to trying to wrap it up. And and uh, but this one, playing with fire, arguably the most researched thing I ever did. Over a thousand sources, several freedom of information requests, lots and lots and lots of interviews, um, lots of public data. Uh, I got a former graduate student of mine who's now in law school in Miami, a guy named Daniel Gonzalez, to work with me on some of the case law. Um, I mean, I have a background in environmental law, but I wanted someone who could just get into the minutiae of the cases. And yeah. there were so many crazy things that we found throughout this process. And then I've, I've actually met people who were young, living in that community at the time, who feel like their their mom saved their lives by shutting this down. Talked to some regulators who said, everything you said in the book was true, but there's a couple of things that are even worse. And I'm like, you know, unless I can verify it, I'm not just going to go right, away yeah. out there on a limb. But some of the stories were just, you know, probably not the kind for a podcast. 
So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, man, that's I, that's interesting because we didn't get a chance to talk about that. So I didn't know exactly what the story was behind that book. So I'm excited. I hate reading because I read so many damn emails. <laughs> but if you audible it, I promise you I will listen to it. I promise you I will listen to it. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm not responsible if I do an audible book. If you fall asleep at the wheel, oh no, man, listening to my monotonous voice go on and on. But uh, it is something we picked around, yeah, um, because there has been so much of a reaction to it. Um, uh, because I've done several documentary films before. Uh, a couple of film crews have asked me about it and, you know, I don't want to get distracted from creating the, the book trilogy. Right. And you can always go back and revisit it, you know, but, but, you know, Hollywood has found that they like making movies in Louisiana and it'd certainly be something that I would be interested in. And And the docu-series trend has taken off too, where it's way more acceptable. You know, the, the production and the quality of, uh, that's a whole nother ordeal to talk about. It's a whole nother podcast, but I mean, the production and quality of uh, what they can do with the docu-series actually, you know, capture the entire audience and and you keep them invested is, is just amazing. You know, the past 10 years what's happened. Um, but no, I really will check it out, man. I I will read it. I'm just, I'm poking fun at you. I want to check it out because that's interesting. And I had no idea about the story. I had no clue. This is news to me. So that's, that's something that I want to learn about, about, you know, just the opposition and the state's position on everything. Yeah. It's interesting because there's like an older group of people who are like, yeah, I remember whatever happened to that. And then yeah. there's younger people who are like, I never heard of that. Yeah. And both of them, when you get through, probably one of the larger lessons to it is this, is that regardless of politics, Democrat, Republican, just throw that stuff out the window. There is a there is a, a power structure in all states, Louisiana included, that often will try to do the wrong thing and do things corrupt. And the people that pay the price are people like you and I. Yeah. And this is not good for business. It's not good for uh, taking care of disenfranchised, marginalized people. Uh, there was a reason the community was picked. They assumed that, hey, these people need jobs. They're not particularly educated. And they'll just take whatever we give yeah. them and just take whatever environmental abuse we give them. And and that should there should be a special uh, crime for that sort of thing uh, because without political corruption, this thing would have never happened. Yeah. I mean, it never would have gone to where it was without a crazy political deal from from former Governor Edwin Edwards on this and a lot of state reps and senators and then uh, subsequent governors who were like, oh, yeah, wink and a nudge. Let's move forward. Man, well, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to looking into this and getting more info on it. Well, any other last words or plugs, man, before we wrap up? No, man, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'd be glad to do it any other time on any any topic I feel confident, yeah. you know, enough to talk about, you know. No, we'll uh, definitely I'll have, I'll have to send you a I'll send you a list of the two other things that I know anything about. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll definitely have a, a, a volume two of this for sure, because there's a lot more stuff we can talk about. But um anyone can find you. What's the best place to find this book? You said Amazon. And what was the title Amazon. again? Just one time in case someone wasn't paying attention. What's the title? Yeah, Playing With Fire, The with Strange fire. Case of Marine Shell Processors, or just Sutherland and Playing With Fire, and you'll get it. Right, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. John Sutherland. Everyone, please subscribe to the podcast.